Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 12th, 2018. This is episode 2249 of the Survival Podcast. 2249, man. It's, it's kind of weird even... Just looking at the numbers sometime and thinking. You know, it's 2249 today. Tomorrow will be a Friday. It'll be 2250. And I remember doing my 50th show and thinking, wow, that's kind of a big deal to get through 50 shows. Of course, I was still doing the show in the car back then. That was all the way back in 2008. And uh, then I remember doing episode 100 and episode 500 and eventually episode 1000. And now I guess, really, if you think about it, kind of... As you cross numbers in doing anything, like you, your, your next number that really seems significant seems like it has a bigger spread to it. Like when you do 50, well, then 100, so you double it. But you don't really get excited about 200. It kind of jumps to like 500. And then it doubles again to 1,000. And then, you know, once you hit 1,000, 2,000, is that really... I mean, we didn't really get excited about that. So what is the next number that we look at and go, wow, that's a, a significant turning of, of the clock? It just doesn't feel like it's 2,500, does it? All the way up to 5,000? Do you guys realize, like, if we ever get there, that will mean that from this point forward, I will have to go longer than we've gone so far? I'll tell you a secret. It's probably going to happen. It's probably going to happen because I love what I do. And one of the things I love doing on this show more than, than just about anything else is actually directly responding to the audience through your emails, your questions, and your phone calls. And as a Thursday show, that's what we're going to be doing today. I'll be answering uh, seven phone calls today. Uh, these are either, well, I say phone calls, audio calls, right? Uh, either you've picked up your phone and you've called the Think line, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK, and you've left your message for me, or you go to the speak pipe. And the way to get to the speak pipe is go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on contact. And, and once you do that, it'll be pretty obvious. If I have to tell you what to do after that, you're probably not going to be able to do it. Anyway, so what do we have calls on today? I have a question on water filtration for large amounts of rain, rain catch water. Uh, dealing with fire ants in container gardens and pots. Finding fish meal for custom feed blends for your poultry. Thoughts on shredded tire mulch. Breaking down the numbers when making the decision to buy or lease a vehicle, and why I've been recently, anyway, a fan of leasing vehicles. A follow-up on last week's feed-grade grain question. So we had somebody ask about using feed-grade grain, like you would buy for your birds for yourself. We got a guy that's actually a food scientist calling in with his opinion on that. Uh, I should say his facts on that, honestly. Uh, and then finding a remote job so you can live the traveling lifestyle. We got all of that and more coming up in just a moment. Before we do, let me just remind you real quick that if you join the Member Support Brigade, you help support this show. You help make sure we can be here for another 10 years for you. And it's really easy to do, and it doesn't cost much money. It's $50 a year or 5 bucks a month. If you want to try it out and see what it's like, do 5 bucks a month. If you don't like it, cancel. You're out 5 bucks. If you do it for five bucks and you're like, it's a pretty good deal, I'd like to get a discount, well then do it for a year, you know, cancel your monthly and do it for a year and get, get it for 50 bucks. And I think if you try it and you use the discounts that we have and the ones that we continue to add, 
you'll get your money back and you'll make a profit. And once you're making a profit with something, there's really no reason not to have it anymore. I mean, it just makes sense to keep it. And that's why we've got a lot of really happy long-term customers. I have people that have been members of the Support Brigade since the day I launched it, and I, I hear from them still, and they say, I'll never leave. I've even heard from a couple of say, I don't really listen anymore because you got me out building a business and I don't have time, but I buy stuff and I go check the discounts and then I use the discounts and dang it, I, you know, I end up 150 bucks ahead every year and I'm not going to not do that. That's the type of program I tried to put together. So check it out. And if you think you know a company that would make a good discount vendor for the MSB, let me know. We'll take a look at them. And as long as they have a track record and a quality product that I would buy myself, I'll, I'll, I'll hook it up for you guys. All right. With that, let's go ahead and get into your calls. This first one here is about water filtration for rain catchment systems. And with that, we'll go ahead and listen to the caller. Good afternoon, Jack. I'm looking for information on a larger water filtration system than the Berkey system. Backstory. I'm converting a 20 by 40 shed into an outdoor kitchen, and I have two 2,050-gallon water tanks I use for rainwater collection. I would prefer to use the rainwater to clean my vegetables and also as a source of emergency water. I don't know that the Berkey system with a gravity flow is going to give me enough volume and water while processing, say, a couple of bushels of vegetables to can or to prep for long-term storage. Uh, any thoughts on this? Uh, it's just for an emergency situation, not for everyday drinking, but I don't mind spending the money to have a larger system if that's what it takes. Thank you. And for everything you do, thank you. Well, there's... There's a lot to think about here with maybe not really doing anything any different. Let, let's start out with um, the concept of, well, this water needs to be used to uh, to wash and prepare vegetables for canning. Well, if you're doing that, you don't need to worry about water filtration at all. It's assuming the water's clean, and I don't mean safe to drink potable. I mean clean, like it's not dirty, uh, which you should be taking care of with screening and a first flush filter. So... One of the first things I'm going to say is you want to make sure that water that you want to use this way, you're running through what's called a, a, a first flush filter, and that means that when the water comes off your roof, the first, let's say, 20 gallons of it or something like that uh, does not go into the tanks. And there's a lot of ways to do that. And one of the cooler ways I've seen to do that is basically a, a float valve made out of a uh, a ball like for a toilet arm. So there's different types of toilet valves, and and one of them has a uh, you know they call them flow masters. It's kind of in the center and it's just really compact. And the other ones is kind of like a, a lever that comes out. I don't remember what they're called, but there's a big round float on the end of them, and you can kind of adjust how high you want the water in the back of the tank by screwing this on and off this arm and changing how deep or how high it sets, uh, so that it'll work with your toilet. Well. That ball fits in some standard size PVC pipe, almost like it was made to. And I don't remember if it's a three or four or whatever. Uh, but I saw Nick uh, Nick Bertner from uh, Living uh, Working with Nature, uh, whatever the hell he calls his company now. Uh, but uh, Nick again, Nicholas Bertner is the guy that I'm talking about, not Ferguson, our guy. Build a first flush filter with this, basically. The, the thing sat in the bottom of the pipe, and then when the pipe filled up, it changed and diverted the water into the tank. So it would have to fill this whole pipe all the way up to the roof level. And then when that ball hit up there, it flipped the thing over and changed it. And you can 
Look up first flush roof catchment filter on YouTube. You'll see a bunch of different ways to do it. Because what that's going to do is keep you know basic debris and the initial icky gick that comes off of the roof with that first rainfall out of your tank. It's going to let that water go somewhere else. And there's again, there's a bunch of ways to do it. Now, if you're doing that, and what you're concerned about is like washing vegetables and stuff like that, then I would personally say that there's no reason not to just go with a Berkey. Uh, and there's a couple ways we could do this that might make this work a little better for you. Um, you're probably using some sort of gravity feed to get the water out of the tanks, uh, but it would be nice if you had some kind of pump water pressure type thing because uh, if you're going to filter it, you see what I'm saying? Like It's going to have to go somewhere after it's filtered, and then once that happens, then you don't really have a lot of pressure on it anymore. I guess you could have it like on some kind of a tank sitting up on top, but there's a, a certain volume that whatever this holding tank of filtered water is, is going to be. And I don't care what you do for filtration, you ain't going to move the water fast enough through the filter to be filtering it on demand unless you're going to use some sort of a pump. And then that's even going to slow your flow. All right. So what you could do is get yourself wherever your holding tank is going to be, And then take a Berkey, and you just run water into the Berkey, and then it discharges. Instead of having that little knob at the bottom that you get water on demand with, just put a flow through there and, and let that water you know, just go down into that holding tank. You could even plumb the whole thing together, okay? And once you did that, basically you could put a float valve in the top of the Berkey. Now, here's where I'm going to make it cost less money. Um, you could use the Berkey filter or any good quality filters and do this with a series of five-gallon buckets. I don't know that I would take an expensive several hundred dollar Berkey water filter system and put it out in a shed uh, as a second system other than one that had my house. So you can use any of these. Like uh, That's one of the things people don't realize. You want a cheap Berkey? Go buy a couple Berkey filters, drill a hole in a five-gallon bucket, put the filters in the bucket. I'm serious. I mean, there you go. It's only a food-grade bucket. Uh, so you, and, and there are other filters than just Berkey filters. I happen to think they're the best, but there are other ceramic filters that pretty much work the same way. So you could build a series of buckets if you really wanted to just increase your volume of flow. Because the way the Berkey works is, depending on the size, you could put one filter in it, you can put two, you can put mine that I have, I think it's the Imperial, I can put six. Or I can put two in and plug the other four holes up. Well, with six filters, six Blackbergy filters, it moves a lot of water fast. It makes, a, it makes water a lot quicker because there's more places for it to go through. So you could even take low-end filters. Probably the best thing to do is look up sand and charcoal bucket filter on YouTube. And you'll see tons of ways you can build your own filters using sand, maybe a sand-gravel-charcoal mix. And it will be good enough for what you want to do. And then if you already have a Berkey, if you're going to actually drink water, then run it through the Berkey. And, and, and you should be fine. Um, and it also has a lot to do with your tanks. Are they indoors? Are they outdoors? Are they black? So you're not going to have any algal growth in there? Are they, you know, IBCs? From the size of them, they sound like they're probably black potable water tanks that are going to not be a problem. So, But for anybody else listening, like, It changes a lot if you have algae growing in there, right? So you need to think about 
all of those things. But I, I wouldn't get wrapped up in trying to move every drop of this stuff through a water filter. I, I really wouldn't. And I, I honestly think that if you just had, you know, something like, if you got like a potable, you know, for potable water, like a 50-gallon tank, and put it on a platform with some Berkey filters over top of it, however you do that, and just keep it topped up, then you've got your big reserve and you've got your small reserve. And you, you might even want to put a couple drops of, of, of chlorine bleach uh, in that reserve tank just to keep it from getting skanky, depending on where it is, how open it is, how often or frequently that water moves through it. But, you know, you can look up the amounts to do that with and, and then cut them in half by whatever it says. Because uh, all you're doing there is just trying to keep it where it is. You're not trying to purify it. But I probably wouldn't even do that. Uh, and, and that'll be fine for washing produce and things like that. That's my thoughts. Anybody that's done this, love to hear what you did with your system. Next up, we have a question for dealing with something I consider Satan's spawn, fire ants. Hey, Jack, this is Zach from East Texas. And I just had a few questions related to pests in potted plants, specifically ants. Now, I've been having quite a problem with ants in my strawberry plants uh, in pots this year. Um, tried uh, diatomaceous earth. That didn't seem to work very well. And I was just wondering if you had any other suggestions as to, you know, controlling the ant population and specifically keeping them out of my potted plants and out of uh, raised bed gardens. So, anyway, I appreciate it. Yeah, well, there, there's a couple things to look at here. Number one, let's start with the pots. Now, if the pots are like up on a, a railing or a hanging pot or sitting on a, a porch with a hard surface underneath them, most likely you don't have ants living in the pot. So let's start with the problem being you got ants that are going into the pot because you're growing strawberries. Strawberries are sweet and ants like sugar. If that's the case, then what you really need to do is find them where they're at, and we'll get to that in a second, and, and you need to kill them where they're at if that's the case. If, they're, if they, they've basically made a nest in your pot, and that happens especially with larger pots, and especially if they're kept sitting on the ground where the ants can have access to both the pot and the ground through the holes in the bottom of the pot. Uh, and this is a good reason that even if you're going to set that pot on the ground, and I'm not saying ants won't go in there and make a nest if you do this. It will make it less likely. If you get one of those saucers that the pot sits on, even if it's going to be on the, the, the plain old regular ground, uh, it, it will, will help some. So if you want to kill ants in the ground, so you got them in a raised garden bed, uh, you got them in the ground somewhere. The best thing I know is to do a soil drench. Uh, you can, if you can find it, there's a product called Antifuego, which means anti-fire. Okay? Um, or you can make it. And if you go to Har Howard Garrett's website, dirtdoctor.com, and you look in their library, you can see how to make the uh, fire ant drench. Uh, but basically, what actually makes the fire ant drench work is orange oil. And if you use the Garrett juice I recommend for your fertility, and then you add per gallon of, not concentrate, per gallon of mix. So you just follow the instructions, and that's, you know, a couple ounces of a gallon or something like that. To that, if you add a, a teaspoon of orange oil, you've got antifuego, basically. And you pour this 
slowly so that it soaks in where the ants are and it will kill them. In general, it does not harm your plants, and it actually improves the soil. The orange oil melts the ants, and then the things like the liquid molasses and the nutrients from the compost tea actually improve soil fertility, and they attract microorganisms that feed on the carcasses of the ants. And that will even happen in your pot. The problem is I have seen plants get shocked by, knocked back by, Uh, the orange oil, if you use too much. And with it being concentrated in a pot, I might be a little bit worried for your strawberry plants. Uh, but what you can always do is use just, you know, mix some up and, and put maybe a quart in the pot and wait a week. And if they're not all gone, give it another, like that, and give it time in between. And it doesn't take that long to work. So what you can do then is, you know, give it a quart, give it a good soaking, kill the ants in there if they're in there, And then, you know, give that maybe an hour to work. And then water the hell out of it with plain old water. Uh, you know, with a watering can or a, a sprayer on a hose. Really slow soaking wet to where it starts, you know, water starts coming out the bottom of it. And do that two or three or four times and flush a lot of that excess out of there. Let it dry because then it's going to be overwatered. But as long as you have good drainage in that pot, it'll quickly go back to a state that it's happy in. And that should eliminate the ants from there. Wherever the ants are living, uh, other than your pot, you use this drench and you murder them. My wife calls this mixture murder juice. And my wife is one of the most benevolent, loving human beings you will ever meet. She, Everybody that meets her says she's so sweet. She has absolute hatred for fire ants and, and, and loves murdering them by the million. And uh, so that's like her task around here is finding fire ants and murdering them. I, I have a feeling she'll be on a murder spree this weekend because she stepped in some yesterday and came in and was pretty pissed off about it. Uh, so the fire ant murdering spree will commence. And, and that's the best natural organic control method that I've found. You're not really going to keep them out of a pot. Uh, good fertility, fertility regimes tend to knock fire ants back. They don't like a lot of the biological activity in the soil. So if you're using rock minerals, you're using soil amendments like Garrett juice, you're using um, uh, horticultural molasses, you'd think that would attract ants. And it, they'll eat it. I mean, they like it. But if you use the amounts of it for fertility that you're supposed to, you start building biological life in your soil, it's kind of irritating to them, and they, they tend to go elsewhere like your neighbor's yard. And then here's the nuclear solution. I, I detest poisons. I really do. But one year, my place in Arlington, before, it was the place I lived in when we started this show, the fire ants were out of control. I mean, the dogs were getting tore up. When you looked out in the backyard, there had to be, you, at any one moment, you could see 50 mounds, and I had about a third of an acre. Uh, and a giant deck and a giant pool, and I mean, you get it, you're wanting a third of an acre of dirt, and there was at least 50 big mounds you could see. And when it rained, you know, 10 more would pop up. And, and that year, I, ju I just couldn't take it anymore. And I also hadn't gotten all into the permaculture stuff, and I didn't have another solution yet. I didn't even know about the drench that I just gave you. But I went out and got Amdro. The, the Amdro bait, not the, the direct poison, the indirect poison. It's these little pellets the ants eat. They take it down in their nest. They feed it to the queen. She dies. Everybody dies. And it took about three weeks, and there wasn't an ant left on the property. And I didn't see a fire ant until the next next season. I skipped a year of having any significant fire ant activity on the property. And I did it the way the bag said. I put it in a spreader, set the spreader to said the way it said the spreader. I spread it like it was grass seed. 
I would not do that again. What I would do, because you think you'd want to take this stuff and put it on the ant bed. When you throw something on an ant bed, even if it's something they would generally consider food, they don't like it, they attack it, they get rid of it. You actually want it around the bed. And then they'll, they'll feed on it, and they'll say, well, this is food, and they start taking it home like ants do down in their hole to get ready for winter and feed the queen. Well, when they take this stuff down there, they start dying left and right, and when they feed her, she dies. And when that happens, the whole mound is gone. It, they, it gets, it, it's destroyed. What I would consider doing if I was in a situation where I just couldn't deal with them is creating some sort of an ant feeder that you can put the bait in. And I know they make ant bait things that are already pre-made and all, but I know the Amdro works, and I know that even the year I used it in a way I would never do it again. Spread it out. I had plenty of beneficial insects. I had plenty of bees. I had plenty of... I saw nothing disappear except fire ants. I'm positive something else was negatively impacted. I'm not saying it was harmless. I'm saying using it as directed... In the worst way possible for the environment, I couldn't detect with my eyes that year anything that really negatively impacted things. So taking something like, basically take a, a soda bottle uh, and, and maybe cut some holes in it and put some of it in there and set it where the ants, near the ant's home so that, and then do something with it so your dogs can't get to it or something like that. Or even something as simple as taking something like a terracotta flower pot and taking a dish and putting it underneath there and putting some Amdro in it, and then propping it up just enough so that ants can easily go in and out of there so they'll find it, and putting some sort of a weight on it to keep it away from anything that you don't want to get in touch with. And please do. Now, I don't think, you know, I had dogs back then and cats back then. They didn't get sick or, you know, that I noticed. But I think anything in a, a large quantity presents a much bigger risk than a broadcast, which is why they probably say to do it that way. So I put very small amounts of this there and then check it. And as you notice it disappearing, keep adding it, watch the ant activity as it goes down, stop doing it. And I'm not saying to go do that. I'm saying if you get to the point where I can't deal with this shit anymore, my kids are getting bit, I'm getting bit, I'm drenching them left and right, I can't get rid of them. Or if you have a flower pot that you really don't want to uh, to drench with the drench because you're afraid you're going to kill the plants in it, then set up some sort of little protected thing with this stuff, and it'll kill them, and, and it does a good job. And i got to tell you, there's there's been some years here where I've looked around and thought, Fah. and I, I just can't bring myself to do it on three acres, but it does work. And again, I did not see anything negatively impacted other than fire ants when I did it, but we don't see everything that happens. I hope that's helpful. Uh, let's take another one. This one on uh, poultry feed. Hey, TSP. This is Josh out in California. I'm hoping Jack or someone on the expert panel could help me out. I'm trying to create a custom chicken layer feed blend, and I'm trying to locally source some fish meal, and I'm having some trouble with that. If anyone could recommend some uh, stores that might carry fish meal or other uses, uh, just to help me locally source some, I would really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, my guess is that you're going around to places like garden shops and stuff like that, or box stores like Home Depot and all, looking for this, uh, or maybe something like Tractor Supply or an Atwoods, uh, where they pretty much stock what they stock, and that's what they stock. 
If you find an honest-to-God feed store somewhere around you, it's almost inevitable that they'll either have fish meal or if they don't have it and you say, well, can you order me some, as long as you want more than a bag or two, they'll probably be happy to do it. I did some checking online, and I found it for about $50 for a 50-pound bag or about a dollar a pound. And that's probably about what you're going to pay or more. It's not cheap compared to other uh, amendments that would go or other components, ingredients, etc. that go into uh, poultry uh, feed. It's a, but it's, it's a huge protein boost, and that's generally why people are doing it. It's not generally, I want to feed my, my chickens fish meal because I think fish meal is the best thing in the world for them. Because chickens don't naturally eat fish. Because they can't get them. If you think about the the genesis of the fowl we call chicken, they all go back to a, a small family of tropical birds that are from Asia. That's that's what they and every chicken in the world, you know, no matter how different they look and how many different breeds we've created by selective breeding and crossbreeding, etc., they all go back to that original jungle fowl. And 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 so biologically, that's what they are. Now, I'm not saying it's bad to feed them fish meal at all. I'm just saying, like, we don't need fish meal for them. That's how we can get large amounts of protein in a form that chickens like that won't hurt them. Um, so you can do that, and that's what I'm going to first recommend is just find all the feed stores, call, and ask. Can you? Or don't ask if they have it. Ask them if they, well, ask them if they have it. If they say no, can you order it for me? And if they say no, find a different feed store. Because generally I found when you're dealing with, again, an honest-to-God feed store uh, or farm co-op or something like that, not a chain store, they're generally the most helpful people that you ever talk to in a retail location in your life. If everybody treated you the way the people at the feed store did, you, you'd smile all the time. At least I would. I mean, I buy one of my favorite. We have a place called Russell Feeds, and I say I'm not knocking chains. It's a small chain. It is a local chain. There's I think about eight of them in the Dallas Fort Worth area, and I've been to four of them. It's the same every place. They're happy to see you. How can I help you? Now they're not the fastest people in the world, but hey, they do a good job. There's another place up in uh, Denton uh, from here. It's another feed store and you know, farm supply. I can't remember the name of the place. They're the same way. You'd think it was the same company if you didn't know better. Um, always helpful, always nice. And so, if you're dealing with a feed store that it, and you need to find another one, and you know, I found I have not looked for fish meal, but I found like for a while we were uh, feeding uh, barley sprouts to our birds, and you know they don't carry it, but they'll sure order it for you. They're happy to, and, and they always have suppliers that they can get this stuff from. So most of them sell you know pet feed and garden supplies and stuff like that. So. With, with that breadth of a, of a, a farm supp or a supplier resource, they can always get it. Uh, then the other thing would be consider, like, why are you doing it? If you're doing it just for protein, let me recommend that maybe you look at peanut meal. And uh, because that was the base of the feed that we used for our duck flock when we were in the duck farming business, and it's the same feed we're still giving to our small little chicken, our little four chicken chicken flock with a couple quail in there with them. And uh, they they love that stuff. It's a great protein that produces an incredibly good quality egg. Uh, I was never in the meat production business, but I'll tell you what, the turkeys that ate that feed, and we did produce those for me, some of the best eating turkey I've ever had in my life. It's just amazing. So you might look to other options for your protein because the number one reason that I find people 
are looking to fish meal for poultry feed, I need to kick the protein up, and I don't want to use soy. That's why we went to peanut meal, because the, the feed we found that met our requirements was made mostly with peanut meal and had no soy. And so when you're wanting to do a non-GM, a lot of times people are, are smart enough to realize, I don't necessarily have to do all organic, but I sure as hell want non-GMO. So now, if, as long as you went to non-GMO, and, and then you, you want to boost that protein, you're either using organic soy, because it's about the only soy grown that's not GMO, uh, or you, you got not much else to pick from other than peanut meal, some different legume meals I guess you could go to, but they're kind of pricey. Uh, and fish meal. So check with your suppliers and check on whether or not they can get peanut meal or check and see if they have a non-GMO feed, period, if that's what you're trying to do. See if they have a feed that will meet your requirements. Uh, and you may find they have, like, so we have a this, this brand of feed that we buy. Uh, you know, you need something like 18% is protein, what you need in your layer formula. They have a game bird starter that's 28%. So... You could use that itself as a protein booster if you didn't want to pay the full price on all the feed and, and cut it at a point that you bring the protein down to a layer uh, portion if you went with a higher protein premium feed. So there's a couple different ways to look at skin in this. But get back with me and let me know if you had any luck once you uh, tried the, the, the true feed store uh, route for things. And where you're living, maybe you just don't have access to that, and then I'm really not sure where you would go Because the problem with buying the fish meal online is the shipping is just going to kill you. That's you know the stores get in you know truckloads of stuff. When you're buying two or three bags, it's it's just almost as much for shipping as the the fish meal itself. Let's take another one. This one on tires for mulch. Hi Jack, Don from Florida. I was wondering what you think about tire mulch, chopped up tire mulch. It's often painted. I hear. I was uh, considering that because I've come into some tires, and I was just wondering if you thought that might be efficacious for a garden, uh, how deep you would place the mulch and whatnot, and if you would maybe spray fertilizer on top of the mulch. Anyway, thanks for all you do. Take care. Uh, as, as most people know, I am not an environmental purist. I, I, I don't try to be Sepp Holzer or something like that. I don't, ew, you touched plastic, now you're going to, and it's not me. Uh, tires are some pretty nasty stuff when it comes right down to what a tire is. And I'm aware that people build earthships out of tires. I'm also aware that once they stuff that tire and build a wall out of it, they cover the ugly, disgusting tire up, and it pretty much stays in its tireness inside there, and I don't think it really causes much trouble. When you shred a tire, <laughs> when you shred anything, you do something called increasing surface area. And anything that's toxic that can leach out of that becomes more available to leach out. So I want you to think about if you had a block of cedar... And, you know, you smell it, it smells good, right? Uh, but it, you can only smell so much cedar. Now, if you take that sucker and you take a, a sanding wheel on a, on a, on a, a belt sander and, and you, you sand it till it's nothing but a pile of cedar sawdust, well, now the smell is just beautiful, cedar smell, right? So when we increase surface area, we increase the ability of whatever is in something to off-gas, to leach out, etc. 
So as nasty as a tire is, and they're pretty nasty. I mean, if you think about what they're made of, when we shred them, we then make that nastiness more available to our soil. Now, again, not being a purist, there are these recycled tire mulches and stuff like that. And if, if somebody's using that because it, it lasts forever and it, it stays put forever and they're basically growing azaleas and knockout roses in the front of their house and they're comfortable with it, I'm not in love with it, but I don't have a problem with it. If you're going to grow your food under a mulch, do not grow it under a tire mulch. Do not grow it under a synthetic mulch of any kind. And there's a bunch of reasons why. And you mentioned, like, Poor fertilizer on top of it. Well, that's kind of the, one of the big problems. If we took away the nasty factor, and we really can't, well, then you've got this problem of continuously building soil fertility. The whole point of using a natural mulch, and part of what people don't like about them, is they do break down over time, and you have to add more mulch. But when they break down, they don't go away to mulch heaven. They become soil. They feed biological microorganisms. So every year that you're bringing in a couple yards of mulch to mulch that garden, you're fertilizing that garden next year. And when you get to the point where that mulch is really broken down and you're going to be planting into your garden this year, you can put any kind of fertilizer down, including like pellet, hard, organic fertilizers, things like that, not just liquid, and then just mulch on, you know, you can put it right on that mulch and then put new mulch on top of it and you've time-capsuled the nitrogen. Every Everything gets better with natural mulch. If you used a tire mulch for that, again, apart from the, the nasty ick factor, uh, any fertilizer or fertility aid or composting that you'd want to do that is in, you know, in fo any form other than liquid, you'd have to basically rake back all of that hard tire mulch, put down your amendments, and then put that tire mulch back and that's going to be as much if not more work than just bringing in some new mulch and then the last thing you kind of said there what i got i just came into some tires like you got yourself a whole bunch of tires tires and shredded tires are different things and you can't just go like buy a wood chipper and start pitching tires in there um And the companies that do this deal with more than just making tire and a little pieces of rubber. Uh, a lot of those are steel-belted radials, and there's a lot of steel in there. Uh, and that needs to be separated and things like that. So it, it, it really isn't a good thing to do with tires as an individual unless you happen to have specialized equipment to do it with. As far as like the colored mulches and stuff, I think a lot of that stuff is more than just shredded tires. I think they actually... What they're doing is they take and they shred the tires, and I think they're actually like vulcanized, melting the rubber and forming in a little shapes and pellets instead of just straight shredding tires. I think that by looking at some of the stuff that they're putting out, it's got to be what they're doing. I've seen it where it looks just like straight-up shredded tire, but most of what I'm seeing today looks like it had been somehow melted, reformed, uh, extruded, or you know, melted and then extruded and chopped or something. Uh, I, again, I'm not a fan of this. I, I, I really I wouldn't fault you for doing it. I wouldn't say, like, you suck because you did it. If I was at somebody's home and their garden was mulched with this stuff and they, they, they had vegetables they grew under it, I'd eat a meal of it. But if I ended up for some reason having to live at your house, I'd start buying my own food after one or two meals. This is how I kind of feel about it. Um, it's just so much easier to use a natural mulch. There's a lot of cool stuff to do with tires. Uh, I don't think this is one of them. And I've had people actually get in my shit about this because, you know, well, at least we're doing something good with the tires. Well, 
Shred the tires up, mix it with concrete, and, and, and increase the, the uh, or decrease the weight and expense of making concrete. And it actually makes a very strong, lightweight concrete. That's one thing you can do with tires. It's a good thing. Growing your food under them or in them is just not something I'm a fan of. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Rick, and I had a question about leasing a vehicle. You've mentioned in the past that you were able to get a good lease deal for your son on his, I think, uh, Nissan. And then also recently you mentioned on your Toyota 4Runner that if you wanted to buy that car, you'd be better off leasing it for three years and then buying it. Can you run through those numbers? How does that work? How has your experience been with leasing recently with uh, with those vehicles? Thanks much. Look forward to hearing more about that. All right, so one of the skill sets that I think we should be teaching our children in school is a really boring thing, but it's the use of Microsoft Excel or any other spreadsheet program. And it's not just – I know that most kids today, by the time they get out of high school, can do some basic things in Excel, but we don't teach them how to do things like I'm going to talk about right here. And that is build a model. And whenever I'm making a purchasing decision – and there's more than one way to do it, I build an Excel model. And once you know the basics of basic algebra, so, I mean, there, it's, not, it's not complicated algebra. We're talking about, please remember my dear Aunt Sally. Okay? Like, if you got that, uh, then Excel does all the work for you. Does everybody remember that? Please remember my dear Aunt Sally. Basically, the add-ons to multiply and divide before you add or subtract and, and go from left to right on a problem. So that's parentheses or other groupings, then exponents. Uh, the multiplication, division, addition, subtraction, in that order. If you've got that and you know how to form a basic formula, in other words, do you know I need to multiply these two things or I need to add these two things before they multiply, so I need to throw some parentheses around them, and you had to stick that in Excel, you can build a model for almost anything at a consumer level. Now, if you're, if you're modeling out business uh, uh, budgets and stuff like that and uh, doing forecasting for sales, it might get a little more complicated. But it, it really it, it's more about knowing what that stuff is. The, the math and the formulas are pretty simple. And if, if, so I know I'm not directly into the question yet, but I'm trying to make a case here that as your kids get into like that high school age, the school isn't going to do it. And you need to teach yourself this shit and then teach your kids this shit. And, and, and use things they want to help them make a decision. When they get to the point where you can spend your own money, let, let's build a little model about what happens because of the money there. So when I had to make this decision, and I couldn't find the damn spreadsheet that I made when I did it, but the numbers are pretty solid in my head here as, as to what they are. It worked out exactly the way you said. If I wanted to buy it, I still would have been better off leasing it. Now, me and my son in our vehicles, two totally different classes of vehicle, type of vehicle, totally different reasons. The leasing was the right choice for us. So with, with my vehicle, here's the numbers as I remember them, and this will be close to the reality. Uh, it was $316, and that's our payment on our second. We have the exact same payment within like 50 cents of, of our, our last one with this new one. Um, but it would have been $316 on the, on the first one I made the decision on, and uh, it was with $4,500 down, but... 
that all came from what the money they gave me for that busted ass old Jetta that I had beat the hell out of. They they were kind of crazy in what they offered for it. So I took forty five hundred bucks that they gave me for that car and put that against the lease. If I had done a sixty month um, loan to purchase the car, which is kind of standard what people would do, the payment would have been five hundred and fourteen dollars a month for sixty months. But see, we don't really care about sixty months. We care about the lease term and comparing apples to apples here. So we're comparing 36 months of payments at 316 versus 36 payments at 514. And this is what that works out to. On the lease, by the time that was done, I had $11,376 paid against that vehicle. Had I purchased it at that point, I would have had $18,500 put into the vehicle. Now, I know what you're thinking, but that's all paid toward paying the vehicle down, and you, you own the vehicle. Leasing's kind of like buying the vehicle for a time. It's buying a part of the vehicle. Okay, You have certain rights at the end of that lease. Well, they had already told me what they would pay me for the vehicle when I turned it in. Yeah, that's what I said, pay me. And this has a lot to do with the vehicle you you buy how how many are made how desirable uh, secondary market is etc but I already had they would give me twenty two hundred dollars assuming I didn't screw it up or go over my mileage they would, they would give me twenty two hundred dollars for it when I turned it in I could put twenty two hundred dollars in my pocket and walk away I'm not going to worry about the twenty two hundred dollars right now but I, you, I think you'll see how big a deal it is in just a second. If I wanted to buy the car at that point, the buyout on the car would now that would be with the $2,200 still in there, so we're still apple to apples, would have been only $880 more than how much I would have still owed on the car with the loan amortization. So yes, at 36 months, if I wanted to buy the car, I did owe more money than if I had originally bought it from 36 months ago. But at that point, I would have only owed $800 more. The spread between the two, I saved $7,128 by leasing versus buying over that period. You take the $800 out, you're still $6,248 ahead. So no matter what I did, at the end of that lease, my worst case scenario, damn it, I think I should keep this car. Let me go ahead and turn it into a finance purchase and buy it out at its, its, its what it's worth now. I would have still been $6,200 ahead. What I ended up doing was taking that $2,000 and putting it toward the purchase, the, the lease of a new vehicle. I gave him a check for $2,000. So I was $2,000 out of the pocket. Got another vehicle just like it except three years newer with no mileage on it and the color we wanted for the same payment. So there was, there was, see, there was no mathematical case you could make to not lease that vehicle. Well, I believe in pride of ownership. Okay, dummy, well, you still get to be $6,200 ahead by buying the vehicle. So when you come at something with the mindset of the wealthy, and you know it's no matter what you say, it's a depreciating asset. All cars are depreciating assets that will become almost worthless given enough time. Then the cost of ownership, the cost of control is what we're looking at, not pride in ownership. 
We want to control the thing that we need for a purpose. We want to do that for as little money as possible. That brings me to my son. Totally different scenario. I have no idea if he would have been better off buying because we didn't even look at it that way. We looked at it from a standpoint of he ain't got no money, but he needs a dependable vehicle for his wife and his kids and to get to work every day. What is the cheapest he can drive a vehicle for the next three years? And turned out to be $129 a month. Yeah, that's what I said, $129 a month. And his lease just came up. He went back down there. He gave them no money. He turned his car and got a new car, and he got it for $169 a month. So he's driving a brand-new uh, Nissan Altima for $169 a month. And he's learned a lesson here that they're not as good to you the second time around, and he had to push real hard because it was more like $249 is where they wanted to have them the second time around. And what they know is, okay, I gotta, I gotta give this car up. So they got you a little bit over a barrel because if you, you know, because he had a basically a termination fee. He, his was a little different. Ultima doesn't have a high resale value. Toyota Camry doesn't have a high resale value like a Forerunner does. So at the end of that, instead of them giving him money, if he didn't want the car anymore, here's 500 bucks. Walk away, go wherever you want, get a new vehicle. And these dealerships are real aggressive with leases because they know you're coming back. You're coming back. So if you have the ability, one of the most powerful things you can have the ability is have a, a, like a third vehicle if you're a couple. Just a little beater that's there as a backup. Somebody visits, tell them don't rent a car while you're here and you fly into town. You can just use the other car. And, and that way, when that lease expires and, and they know they've kind of got you that way, you can say, that's all right, I'll just, I'll just turn the car in. Well, what are you going to do for a new car? I got another car. And, and two, one of two things are going to happen. They're going to fall over themselves to make the deal work the way that they should have in the first place. Or they're not. And then you leave, and then you go back to them or a different dealership as a brand new lease customer with good credit who just finished paying a lease off in full so the credit's even better that now has to be won back into the system. And, and when they know they're dealing with somebody who's willing to do that, They will never do quite as much as they will with someone that's not in the system, but it's close enough that you'll probably realize that you have value to each other and you'll probably do the deal. In our case, it was the easiest job a salesperson ever did because the man listened to me when we upgraded ours. I went in and I said, this is how this is going to work. Well, let me show you that. Stop right there. Anything you say is going to make this harder on you. And I know I sound like a dick, but I don't have time to waste. I want basically the same vehicle. She wants charcoal gray this time. It's the mid, mid-level mid trim. You can look on ours and see what it's got on it. I want the same vehicle for about the same payment. I'm willing to give you up to $2,000. If you can make those numbers work, we'll just get a new one. If you can't make those numbers work, I'm going to have to go shop around. Well, I'm going to stop. Stop. Don't say nothing. Go see if you can do that. And you don't have to do it right now. We'll come back. Well, here's our number. Give us a call. We're not going anywhere. We've got to turn this vehicle in in the next 45 days. If you can make that deal, we'll come get a new one. If you can't, tell me and I'll go somewhere else. And the guy just sat there kind of like a deer in the headlights going, shit. And I think part of him was going, I don't know if I can do it. So when he looked at all the numbers, he's like, yeah, no problem. Call us up. Said, uh, we don't have a, a charcoal gray one, but we can get you one in a couple of days. Call us when you have it ready to go. 
And it was, I mean, it was literally that easy. Like when we went there, they had it in detailing it for us. We gave them one set of keys. They gave us another set of keys. We signed a couple pieces of paper, jumped in the new car, and left. That was it. And and it's very good for the dealer, and it's very good for the buyer. Just understand that they will try to kind of take advantage of that end of lease term. This is why the best thing you can do is something like we do, which is you find a vehicle that is in extreme demand, low mileage coming off of lease. Because the reason they were able to make it work is they were actually able to give us more money than they were committed to giving us. Because as soon as they knew the vehicle would be available, they, st- they started looking for buyers and they had our vehicle sold. Literally, our vehicle went in, went through their you know 150-point inspection, got detailed, and the guy that bought it left that evening with it. It was already gone off. The- it was already spoken for. Why? The Toyota 4Runner is a low-production vehicle. They don't make a lot of them. The most, the best deal in them is the mid-trim, and I don't know if it's the XT or XE or whatever the hell it is. I don't, it doesn't matter. The middle-of-the-road one. The top-end model doesn't give you much more. It's all about the electronics, and it's stuff that most people will never use. And the base model is lacking. So it's already limited, and then the the most value-driven one in it is the middle. We bought that intentionally, and unless something majorly changes, that vehicle is desirable because a lot of people that want one cannot afford a new one. So they can't afford $44,000, $45,000, but they can afford $28,900, somewhere in that range, which is what that vehicle's worth when it comes off a lease after 24 to 36 months. There just ain't a lot of them. So they Toyota literally has people waiting for one. Specifically, you know, red, black, gray. Stay away from cream. Cream, sandalwood, white, not the color you want in vehicles. Uh, all that gets taken into account by a dealership on a lease return if you're in that class of vehicle. You know, you're an upper-end Audi or something like that. They, they know they can sell that vehicle to someone that wants one but can't afford a new one, and hell, one with 41,000 miles or 36,000 miles on it that was on a lease that was serviced by the dealership for three years, that's just as good in their opinion, and it really is. So everybody wins. It doesn't work with all vehicles. Modeling a spreadsheet is such a skill Please teach yourself to do this. Start modeling things that don't really matter. Just just figure out like three different financing options. Just make them up. Plug them in and look at it. This was what was so frustrating for me with my sister-in-law buying a brand new car on a 72-month purchase. And I'd made the offer, listen, I'm not going to tell you what to buy. I'm not going to tell you what option. I'm not going to tell you what color. I don't care. Just please get the information from the guy. Get him on the phone with me. I will build you a model, and I'll let you look at it, and then do whatever you want. And the head nods, and okay. And then three weeks later, is she going to buy the car? Oh, she already bought it. What? Yeah, she got it with a six-year loan. And you're just like, screw it. I'm not even trying anymore. Anyway, I went long on that because I... God, guys, this will put so much money back in your pocket in your life. And I'm not saying lease versus buy. I'm saying making the decision with numbers and math every single time. Run the numbers, look at the numbers, and if they're not self-evident, if there's still some level of decision-making, put the numbers away, go do something for a day or two, 
When they say, well, I'd like to put you in that new car, but I don't know if it'll be here when you get back. Well, yeah, the factory makes more of them, don't you? So don't say stupid shit like that or I'm not going to buy a car from you ever. Because that's I am a dick with car dealers. I really am. When they say something like that, what I say to somebody like that is, so, um, so who's another salesperson I can talk to here? And they'll go, what? And I'm dead serious, guys. I'm not kidding. I'm not doing entertainment value here. If I'm lied to, if I'm talked to like an asshole idiot, like I'm too stupid to know things, okay, I need a different salesman. What? 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 Well, you, you're 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 a liar, and I don't deal with liars. You know, if they, if I say, what's the best price you can get me on this vehicle, and they tell me, and I say, I don't think that's going to work. I'm going to have to shop around. Well, let me see what else I can do. Well, you just said it was the best price. Well, I do better. Okay, I need a new salesperson because you're a liar. If we're going to work that way, I'm just—I don't want you. And I'm dead serious. I'll be like, if they don't go get me one, I'll go find a manager. Hey, I need a different salesperson. Why? This guy lied to me. Now he ain't going to get in no trouble. He's doing what he's trained to do. But I've just made a statement to that dealership. I'm not going to be bullshitted. And that's the one. I don't know if that car will be here when you get back. I'm done with you. I'm, I mean, that's what you say to an 18-year-old kid, not to a, a guy in his mid-40s. But if you model this stuff with Excel. And you don't worry about whether it's going to be there because it's going to be there. And then you come back and look at the numbers with fresh eyes. You'll make the best financial decisions for yourself. And over a lifetime, you, you're, you're talking hundreds of thousands of additional dollars that are available for things that are kind of important like retirement. Let's, uh, I know, again, I went long, but, God, that's so important. And, and, man, we should be teaching this as a core skill to people. And it doesn't take much intelligence to figure out why we don't uh next i got a question on or actually a comment on using feed grade grain for human consumption hi jack this is jay from norcal uh and i am actually a food scientist um so real quick on feed grade versus sort of commercial grades uh, we put really high specifications on anything that is going to go into a sort of manufactured food product, so specifically flour, very tight carbohydrate and protein ranges so that when people are baking, they get exactly, uh, you know, repeatable, consistent results. Feed grade, it's probably all over the place, but should be safe. And so if you want maybe a more rustic uh, uh, and unpredictable product, uh, absolutely use it. I use feed grade uh grains for brewing, especially oats and uh, raw wheat. Anyway, thanks, Jack. Bye. Okay, I've only got a little bit to add there because it's pretty much a validation of what I said last week, that there's, there's no reason you can't eat it. Um, but the nutrient levels, protein levels of stuff, and, and her, he's talking about having it really dialed in. I want to talk about what that means and what, what matters there. It doesn't really matter much from a standpoint of you're buying whole grain to do whole grain things with. Where it really starts to come down to it is if you're making flour for specific applications. For instance, there is cake flour, there is bread flour, there is all-purpose flour. And the protein amounts in them is one of the, not the only, but one of the key differences. And this will determine a lot about how flour will create a specific firmness or fluffiness or something like that in a final product. So what you end up with is a less predictable result. 
the actual nutrients, though, are close enough that from a dietary standpoint, it's not really a big deal, especially when you're talking about using a whole grain product. Uh, so, so I, I mean, it's, I'm back to what I said last week. Uh, if you're going to use grains and you're going to be buying big bulk quantities of grains, there's no real reason to spend more money because this grain is for you and this grain is for the chicken. In the end, it's wheat or barley or whatever that was grown in the same field. One may, one again, if we're buying a flour product or a product that's designed to be made into a specific type of flour, we've dialed in that protein, gluten, et cetera, levels so that it will make a specific type of result if we make a cake or a pie or a pancake out of it. Anyway, so that's that's what he's talking about, dialing that in. It's not really dialing it in. It's really determining what it is and maybe cutting it back with a little something else to get it where you want it. You're not really adjusting anything. It's just what is this, what is this particular uh, batch of wheat best for? Uh, or again, we take a high and a low protein and put them together and end up with something that is blended out that makes a good bread flour. Uh, next up, I have a question on uh, traveling and working remotely. Hi, Jack. Calling from Australia here. I've uh, got myself out of debt and bought myself an RV and moved into it. I've been living in it for seven months. I uh, paid cash for it, and it should have paid itself off pretty soon. Uh, I'm thinking about hitting the road, doing some traveling. I was wondering if you had any ideas for jobs that could be done on the road with uh, internet access. My skill base is a, currently a primary school teacher teaching kitchen and garden skills, and I'm a former chef and gardener permaculturist myself. Keen to hear your ideas. Thank you very much. Long-time listener. Bye. Well, gee, a guy with experience in cooking and education, what could you do to earn money? Uh I'm going to push initially toward the entrepreneurial thing. Um, or probably in a lot of jobs uh, where somebody's going to pay you based on that, that particular skill set, uh, a cook and teacher and a, a child educator. Um, so you, if it was me, I would look at trying to develop something that was more of a, a entrepreneurial product of, you know, a, a product for kids to learn how to cook um, and, and how you can let your teenager learn how to cook like a chef and sell that to homeschoolers. And, and then if you have a certain amount of sales going every month, you don't have to work. You just keep making your product better and you work for yourself. That would be one angle to take of it. The other thing is you're going to be a teacher, cook, chef traveling around in an RV there could be a whole product or content content generation business in that. And that's just how my head works. For employment, you're going to have to look outside of that. So you have probably basic skill sets, computer skills, and work history. So then that's really about finding out the companies that are hiring people uh, to work remotely and selling yourself into that position. And there's a lot of them. You know, if you were a coder, if you were a software developer or something like that, well, there's tons of work like that available, especially for someone that speaks fluent English, because there's a lot of people that can do it really well for really cheap, but they don't speak English, and it pays a premium to speak English. And if you're trying to get something developed, you're willing to pay that premium because the language barrier can cost you. It's nothing about a coder from Delhi not being a good coder, but if you're not – the problem between coders and, and, and people that are entrepreneurs that want to develop something is 
when we both speak the same language, it's still at times difficult for us each to understand what each person is really saying. When there's a language barrier, we think we agree, and whatever you build me ain't even close to what I wanted. I've had it happen. But, you know, it, you don't say that you have those skills. So I think, you know, some sort of customer service is something that's always, you know, possible. Of course, that really has been taken over by the call centers uh, in, uh, in India and Pakistan. But, it, it's you know, there's companies that want that. Um, I think what you need to be doing is, if you want a job, is looking for a job, and then within that finding, you know, ah, this job could be done remotely if I can sell them on it. And maybe if they pay less because I get that freedom, they'll be open to it and that type of thing. Um, I don't really know, you know, like a list of jobs that are available, in you know, for an Australian that, you know, are remote worker jobs. Um, now, I did look into remote teaching, and there's actually a pretty good business in being a post-secondary teacher doing lectures and stuff like that for colleges. So if you can sell yourself up to that level, uh, the, the median income of people that do this, according to Forbes magazine, is about $62,000 a year. I just don't think we're there yet. Uh, in the secondary, you know, uh, youth world of, you know, where public schooling is. I did find a company called study.com. Um, they provide access. This is another more of a college level thing, but also gets involved in the GED thing. Um, they offer jobs anywhere, uh, including lesson writers, math experts, and curriculum designers. So that would be a company that you might be able to, uh, to check into as well. Uh, if anybody's done this, uh, especially if you've gotten yourself into something you really didn't have the background for, but there's just such a need for people there, and most people could do it with a little training or a little experience or whatever, I'd love to hear from you. This is If I were in my early 20s and single, uh, again, like I was at one time, and it was 2018 instead of you know 1992, 1993, like it was for me when I got out of the military... Um, this is what I would be trying to do. There, there's so much opportunity in this. I think it's really about finding out what's available and selling yourself into it. And I think this is more of a job seeker question uh, or response than a specific to this need. I want to work for my RV. Um, in the end, you don't go out and find a job that you are qualified for, for on paper. You find a job that you want, that you believe that you can do, and you sell yourself into it. So when people say, well, can you look at my resume? Some, I've had people say, can you look at my resume tell you what you think? Well, what job are you going to apply for with it? Well, all of them. Well, then I hate your resume. And they look at you really confused. Well, I mean, why would you apply to these two different jobs, these two different employers that have two different desires with the same marketing piece? And they're like, what? Like, well, your resume is a marketing piece. It's, it's not your resume. Like, I understand having kind of a boilerplate resume if you need it, you know, off the cuff real quick or something. But if you really want a position, then what you do is you tailor the resume to the position. You get a bit creative. Notice I didn't say lie, but you sure as hell embellish. If they say that you, they need somebody with three years of customer service, 
then if you're an educator, you say you have you know three, four, whatever years in a customer-oriented environment because the kids and the parents are your customers. Because the purpose of a resume is not to get a job. I'm going to say that one more time. This is something that I just don't even believe you have to say in 2018, but people still don't know this. The purpose of a resume is not to get a job. The purpose of a resume is to get an interview. And once you get that interview, then you get the opportunity to learn more about the job and to truly sell yourself into it. This is back, and, and it's, I, I say this all the time, and I get people that don't believe me, marketing and sales are completely different disciplines. Marketing is putting out a story, putting out information that creates interest. Selling is transferring a belief so the interest becomes an action. So the, the, the interested party becomes a customer. That is a sales process. Develop interest, marketing, convert interest to action, sales. Right? That's, that's how this works. And people say, well, I don't care because I'm not in sales. Well, you will be at least once in your life, and most people will be in sales many times in their life. Do you want that girl to go out with you? You have to sell yourself to her. Right? I mean, it's, you want... Uh, to get into that college that's a competitive university and you're going to go have an interview, you're selling yourself to that college. You want mom to buy you a bike, you're selling her on why it's good for her to buy you a bike. You want on the, on the sports team and you're right at the edge of being cut, you're selling the coach on the fact that you're going to work your ass off and be worth the risk. You want a job working for XYZ company, you're going to sell yourself to that manager. And by getting in your head that the resume is the marketing piece and the interview is the sales portion, you set yourself up to be able to get jobs that otherwise you would never get. Because you look at that job and they're telling you, this is what we want. Don't send them a resume that doesn't say you are what they want. And people say, well, then i got to lie. No, you don't. No, you don't. You market the truth about yourself in such a way that tells them, I am what you're looking for. And then when you go there and they say, well, it says you have this customer service experience, but you're basically a teacher. How's that work? Well, you sell yourself. Well, what do you think is more difficult, sir? Dealing with an adult that has an issue with this particular product that I have the knowledge to give them to how to fix it or to be able to get an eight-year-old to understand how to cook macaroni and cheese? So the second one's actually a lot more difficult, requires a lot more effort and understanding of the communication necessary to get that across to somebody. And I had to do it with 24, 28, 30, whatever the number is, young people at a time. What you're going to be asking me to do is handling this type of relationship with maybe 28 to 40 people a day, one at a time. So I think I'm more than qualified to deal with that situation. And I'm not a teacher, I'm talking about myself now, but I think that would be a pretty good answer for me if I was a hiring manager, and I'd be really interested in working with you if that was the job I was hiring somebody to do. So this is the approach that you should take. It's an approach that everybody should take. Find a job with the working conditions, et cetera, that you want, and then develop a marketing piece that you'll call a resume that matches that and submit that to that individual job. If you're applying for 20 jobs today, Assuming they're all good enough that you, I don't just need a job. These are 20 places I'd like to work. You're probably submitting 20 resumes. And sometimes the change will be as subtle 
is changing the objective on your cover letter and one bullet point. And sometimes the two resumes look like two totally different people. But if you're not doing that, you're losing. You're losing out. You're, you're playing, I hope somebody else matches to me. Instead of, I match everybody, now compete for me. Because no, I'll tell you the strongest response at the end of an interview. You know, do you have any questions? Yeah, you ask a couple questions about them. Uh, we'll be in touch. Is to be able to say, great, um, please get in touch with me if you're interested in taking this further. I'm very interested after our conversation today about possibly going further. I've got two more interviews this week as well, and I'm gonna, I, I have a feeling based on some feedback I've already had from one of them, I'm going to have to make a decision within the next week or two, and I would love the opportunity to work here, but at some point I've got to pull the trigger. Stock price just went up 25%. And, and it's human nature. There's no way around it. And, and if people say, well, you sound a little arrogant that way. You better. You better. People that are good know that they're good. They sound a little bit arrogant. They don't sound extremely arrogant. But you should have a little bit of a, I am good enough to do this. I'm good enough to do other things, and you really want me here. I'm telling you, the, the, the thing that always pushes me on a hiring decision, if I don't care if you work for a competitor, if I think if this person went to work for, you know, if I'm Spacely Sprockets, And this guy's going to go work for Cogswell Cogs. Will I care? If I don't care, I might hire you if I absolutely freaking need someone. I don't have anybody else. And yeah, you fit in this spot. You will literally become a sprocket or a cog in the works. And you're in a high turnover position. So if I'm hiring a key person that I view as valuable to my organization, I'm looking for somebody that my thought is I don't want this person working for my competitor. I want them working for me. By the way, that's also a good one to turn around. What is the number one reason that I should hire you? Sir, you know, I've done a lot of you know, self-examination and study and trying to make myself better for uh, employers such as yourself. And one of the things that I've discovered is hiring managers generally want to hire the type of person that they would prefer not go work for, your co their, for their competitor. That's me. You, it would be better that I work for you than work for your competitor. I'm not saying I'm going to go work for your competitor. I'm just saying that's the way to think about this, that that's how valuable I would be to your organization, that you'd prefer that I was here instead of there. You sound arrogant. Yeah. That's why I got paid well coming up through the system. That's why I always did better than the people around me on a starting salary. Because negotiate. And negotiate gets you jobs that you're not really qualified for on paper, but you can do. I was hired into two different jobs in my life that required a degree and preferred a master's degree, neither of which I have. And yes, it said required. Why? Hey, you're good. That's why. You have a reputation. That's why. And if you don't have a reputation, make one. I'm serious. With that in mind, uh, you can check out those uh, couple of resources. I'd love to hear from people that are doing the remote thing and what you're doing and how you got into it. That might make a whole good show in itself someday because it is one of the, the freest forms of living that there is, is being able to work remotely. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. I want to remind you guys that one of the ways you can support this show is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That website is tsp. 
AZ.com, tspaz.com. Uh, every day I do have an item of the day for you, a product you can look at that I recommend. And remember, when I recommend a product, that means I own it, I spend my own money on it, and if I ever need it again, I will do it again. And if I wouldn't spend my money on it, I do not ask you to spend your money on it. Today I have my, my number two favorite kitchen shear, because my number one favorite ones are gone forever, it seems like. They were made by a company called Red Yeti Wear, and they just don't seem to be available anymore. But these are a, a very well-placing number, too. I guess they are my favorite ones that are available, right? They're made by Fiskars. They're uh, take-apart kitchen shears. And there are certain things that I look for in kitchen shears. Number one is they have to be able to be taken apart. Because I'm going to pick these shears up and cut the backbone out of a chicken today, and tomorrow I might be chopping up a bunch of basil or parsley or something with them. And I do not want chicken skank inside those scissors growing salmonella cells that are going to end up in my salad or my guest salad. Right? So it's got to be able to come apart. Here's the key, though. So many really overall good kitchen shears... The way they adjust the take-apart feature, you'll be cutting something with them, and they come apart in your hands. Then I throw them away, and I never buy from that company again. That's bullshit. There's no reason for that to be. If we put a man on the moon in 1969, in 2018, we can make a pair of come-apart shears that don't come apart when you're cutting something. The Fiskars won't stay together. I want a good edge, and I want good edge retention. Anything with the blade should have it. I want micro serrations. Micro serrations in your shears allows them to cut cleanly and cut better than not having them. The Fiskars have those. I want them to be affordable. I know there's some good kitchen shears out there that you can go out and pay like 80 bucks for. In the end, it is a pair of scissors. I'm not paying $80 for a pair of scissors. These are 12 bucks. 12 bucks. And by the way, if you want two pair, buy two individually because for some reason, people at Fiskars think you're stupid and they want 12 bucks for one but they want $39 for a two-pack. Well, if you don't understand that, you're doing that common core math. Don't do that. Do real math and understand two of them should be about $24 with change. They're really about $26 bucks versus $39. You don't need an Excel spreadsheet like we talked about to figure that one out. Um, these are an outstanding set of shears. Um, and I, I believe a good set of shears belongs in any kitchen. They're also great for processing quail. If you're a quail owner, they're, they're my preferred shears for that. I kind of even for the quail like them better than the Red Yeti wear because they're a little smaller, so they work a little better in that um, situation. But I really recommend that you put a good quality set of take-apart, completely cleanable kitchen shears in your kitchen if you don't have them already. And two is one, one is none. I have a pair of the Red Yeti where I have a pair of these. Um, and it's often that I'm using one versus the other because one's in the dishwasher. or I put the other one over there and can't find it right now. I mean, it's something that disappears. Uh, for, for 13 bucks, let's call it, when you round it up. I mean, it's a good investment, and it's kind of a lifetime purchase. I, I can't imagine a pair of these ever breaking on you, and they ain't real hard to sharpen. And you don't, because they hold an edge well, and what you do with them, you don't have to sharpen them that often. So check them out today. Again, they're the Fiskars, 7-inch take-apart shears. They're available at T-Spaz or at the survivalpodcast.com. Scroll down to that review. And remember, everything that I've ever reviewed is alphabetically, alphabetically arranged by category at tspaz.com. You can read my reviews. You can see the reason that I recommend it. But no matter what you buy, whether it's something I recommend it or not, if you go to tspazfirst.com when you shop online, 
You help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. That brings us to our song of the day. Our song of the day today is an interesting one for me. It's by a band called The Grassroots. And this is like an old hippie band. I'm talking, this is old hippie music. I mean, we're talking 1967 war protesting flower child hippies because that's when this song was released. It was actually originally an Italian pop song done in Italian uh, and it was more along the lines of this distressed woman finding comfort with this musician, which when you listen to the song, there's, there's some of that still in it. Um, but this song is called Let's Live for Today. And, I mean, 100% let's live for today. I mean, this song goes all in on it. Basically, like, screw the future, screw planning for anything, screw worrying about money, screw worrying about tomorrow, let's live for today, let's live with love, and the people that don't are crazy. To the extreme when you really listen to this song and hear the lyrics in it. And it's also very much uh, this guy trying to hook up with a girl. I mean, that's that's any good 60s song, right? So, but it re I mean, let's go back to that core of screw tomorrow, live for today. Anybody that's even the most remotely responsible of an adult, even if you say that's a pretty groovy old song, is going to say, yeah, I don't quite agree with that. And you might sit and and this is what makes the song interesting for me as far as the way we view the world through this lens of modern survivalism and planning for things to go wrong and planning for our future and plan you know what have you why was it so easy for people to think this way in 1967 i mean i want you to really think about that cuz that's an that's an important question to answer if you're going to understand some of the threats that we face right now today and How our children are educated, the threat of our children being educated improperly. And, and I might sound a little conspiratorial when I say that, but it's, yeah, it'll make sense, I promise you, if you stick with me here. So, if you think about 1967 when this song came out, the Vietnam War was raging. Almost everybody knew somebody who was drafted against their will, went off to fight in this seemingly endless war, and died. Almost everybody knew somebody, and I should add that they cared about, that that happened to, and that they cared about that came home not whole, with a leg missing, in a wheelchair, etc. And even though we hadn't gotten to the end of the war yet, and men were still going to die for a lot more years, we were starting to rack the numbers of people that weren't coming home up to that number that came close to almost 60,000 men. So that war is going on. In 1962... October of 1962, we had been through the Cuban Missile Crisis and a standoff between uh, JFK and the Soviet Union that took us literally, you know, within hours of World War III occurring. And there were the 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 Cold War was still raging hot at this time. If you go further back. If you ever want to take a, a peek at what culture was like in America in the 1950s, get on Netflix and pull up the original Twilight Zone, Rod Serling's Twilight Zone, and start watching that. And every third or fourth one will have something to do with the world ending due to nuclear war. And if you talk to most people in the 1960s, especially about 1967, if you talk to most people in the 1970s, and even through in the early 80s when I was a kid, 
and said, what do you think the odds are that sooner or later we're going to have World War III and an end of all life on Earth? About 80% would say, I think it's either inevitable or highly likely. Inevitable or highly likely. Eight out of ten people walking around believing that they will probably see the end of life as we know it in their lifetime in such a way that buying some beans and bacon in a can doesn't even make any sense. Because what we all knew in the back of our heads, those of us that are older than some of you younger folks that never lived through this, was if this shit goes down, you can go in any bunker you want and you're done anyway. You Eventually you're going to run out and when you come up there won't be anything. And what is here will be poison and toxic and you're going to die. The mentality really was, at some point, you can talk about bunkers and saltine crackers and cans all you want, but in the end, if this shit goes down, the best thing to do is get a beer, climb up on the roof, and watch the fireworks go off. And just accept it. Well, if you believe that, <laughs> if you believe that, how hard and how big of a jump is it to get to, well, let's just live for today. I mean, if you're an older person, you've been around a while and more seasoned, but if you're, I mean, they, come on, the hippies were teenagers and young 20s. Maybe a few, like, old hippies were 26, 27, you know, and the pervo hippie that thought he could still hook up with chicks, it was in his mid-30s, right? That That's that's who these people were. Not necessarily the people making the music, though a lot of them were, but people that listened to it. Everybody was doing drugs. I mean, If you just think there's no way we're going to even be here in 10 years, and you got some you know old fart yelling at you about getting an education and a career, why are you going to bother? What does that have to do with today? Let's solve this global warming bullshit. The average college-age kid today that's been indoctrinated really thinks that this is going to end the world. I had young people, they were in their mid-twenties, that were relatively intelligent people, not completely, you know, over-the-edge over the social justice warrior nut jobs. We're talking relatively intelligent people. We were at a, a, a permaculture thing, and we're sitting around this fire pit at a harbor in San Diego, and a guy says, yeah, man, people don't understand, within 10 years, you won't be able to sit here. Because the water will be this high up. It'll be flooding that hotel over there. And I looked at this guy and I said, are you serious? And he said, yes. Like, you don't understand. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute. I want to be, be 100% sure. You really think that within 10 years, that water down there is going to be up here? Yeah. I said, why? It goes global warming. You really believe this? Yeah. I said, okay, hold on. <laughs> the most extreme predictions by IPCC, is like a four-inch rise in sea level over a hundred years. That water is about 12 feet below where we are. Four inches over a hundred years. If the most extreme predictions are right, 12 feet over 10 years, and you think that water is going to be up here. And he just looked confused. It didn't match the narrative, but I gave him real numbers from a source he trusted, and he knew who I was enough to trust my number. So you have to start asking yourself, when people worry about, like, why would they overextend this lie? 
It's not just about a carbon tax. It's about control of a whole generation. When you convince a people that there is no certainty in their future, that they are most likely not going to be here, that terrible things are going to happen, there's a lot you can do. One, you make them weak and easily manipulated. And two, if you can, once you get them in that state, convince them that you have the solution, they'll do whatever you say. And while the threat of nuclear war was really there, the people in power lathered it up to make it worse than it is. We have major environmental problems in the world today. But it's the same story. You convince the youth that there's no future so that they'll live for today. That means they go into a world where they want instant gratification. That's what socialism promises. And you win them over. And this has been done generation after generation after generation. So while this song sounds all happy, it's kind of a cool sounding song and all, understand where the mindset comes from of screw tomorrow, let's live for today. Yeah, it's, it's something that every 22-year-old has a little bit of. But when you convince them that they won't live to be 32, or that life won't be worth living when they're 32, They go all in, and when you go all in on this mentality, you're easily controlled. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you live that better life, times get tough, or even if they don't. When I think of all the worries people seem to find And how they're in a hurry to complicate their minds By chasing after money and dreams that can't come true I'm glad that we are different We've better things to do May others plan their future I'm busy loving you One, two, three, four As long as I'm with you We'll take it nice and easy And use my simple plan You'll be my loving woman I'll be your loving man We'll take the most from living Have pleasure while we can Two, three, four Sha-la-la-la-la-la Live for today Summer love, baby, give me some love. Give me some love.